Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. John chapter 1, verse 1 through to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about, when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Well, hi, everybody. It's great to see you. My name is Howard. It's my privilege to be the pastor here at Westminster Chapel. Everyone is welcome here. I was sad to not be here last week. I was actually serving another church. It's part of our movement Um, that caused some concern in our family because my son uh, got a bit anxious in the week and he thought that I had moved church uh, and the family would be coming to this church but I would be going to this other church in Sunbury about an hour away but that's um, not true. (laughs) I am here. Uh, I'm really excited to start this new series in John's Gospel with you. This is a first century biography uh, written by John, one of Jesus' closest followers and it's got a massive historical pedigree to it. It's actually um, the earliest attested of all of the biographies about the person of Jesus 
We have a copy of a copy of the original. It's in a museum in Manchester. It's called the John Ryland's Fragment, or P52. And academics debate amongst themselves, but the average dating of it is to 125 um, AD. So that's really close in time to when these events took place that were recorded and written down. It's actually part of John chapter 18, if you're really interested. I'd encourage you to go and read about it. And it shows that there's been no distortion from the account of John's gospel that we read. It is reliable. There's historical pedigree to this gospel that we're going to be studying together. You can see that from the John Rylands fragment, and there's loads of other things that I could say about that, and we'll work through that as we go through this series. But you're going to be less impressed by the historical pedigree of it than you are by its supernatural power to reveal Jesus, to make God known to you. And one of the key themes of the whole gospel is friendship. It's about friendship with God. So I want to ask you a question along these lines. Do you know what it's like to have a close friend? Do you know that, that privileged experience, have a really close friend in your life? I, I'm fortunate enough to have that. And um, this friend of mine, he's the guy I would call upon. If I was ever in a fight and if I ever got in trouble, he's the one I would want beside me. He'd have my back. I'd know I could trust him. He's also way bigger than me and way stronger, far more intimidating than small little Howard. Um, and he would do some damage if I was in trouble. He's the kind of friend that you want in those sorts of situations if they come up in life. Um, but he's also the guy I, I really trust. So if my marriage was in trouble, he's the one I would go to to speak lovingly to me, but to challenge me. Here's my problem, though. My problem is that I don't prioritize spending time with him. And I think that's a picture of the Christian life for many. We are invited to have a relationship with the most amazing being in all of existence. Yet most of the time we say, I'm just too busy. I'm too preoccupied. I've got other things going on in my, in my life. So we neglect God. And we wilt as a result of this. Like a plant in need of water, in need of sunlight, we, we wilt. And so this series in John's Gospel is a divine friendship reboot to meet with Jesus, to encounter him. And as we go through this gospel, you'll see there are 22 stories, each with a geographical location to them. Again, another evidence of the historical reliability of this gospel. But you'll find in each of these stories that you're being invited into the story to be part of the story. True stories to meet Jesus. You'll feel like you're one of the disciples in chapter one being called to follow Jesus and being invited, wow, I get to follow Jesus, isn't that amazing? You might feel like you're Nathaniel, frustrated with the world, sat under a fig tree, thinking no one notices him, but Jesus God saw him supernaturally, and he feels alive as a result of that. Hey, you might feel like the woman at the well, she's, she's isolating in shame, feeling like no one cares about her, alone and unwanted by the world. And yet there is Jesus sat with her, absorbing that shame, transforming her life, showing her that God loves her. So she'll go run to the very people that she's hiding from 
Or you might be like Nicodemus, being provoked, this great rabbi, all of his learning about God and what it means to follow God. And Jesus comes to him and says, actually, I'm not interested in helping people live better lives. The change I'm looking for is deeper than that. It's heart change. It's being a new creation, being born again. It's an amazing invitation in this series for a fresh start to meet with Jesus, for empowered living in Him and for Him. It's an invitation to have the same kind of fellowship and relationship that John, the author, had with Jesus. Now, John calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved, or the beloved disciple. Now, we might think, God, he's a bit arrogant, isn't he? But actually, if you misunderstand it, actually, he's quite humble throughout it. He's anonymous. We don't actually know it's John. We're not told it's John. There's even some debate about which John this is. You'll discover which John I I think is writing it as we go on. But he's using this actually as a God-given literary device. He's anonymous. Who is this beloved disciple? And you start as you go through the gospel to discover it's an invitation for you to be the beloved disciple. That's why it's anonymous. That's why it's unnamed. So you can put your name in it. We're called to be like John to put our head on Jesus' chest, to know his heartbeat of love for us. This is really the position of discipleship. It's to be in the bosom of God. That's what Jesus was, verse 18. He was in the closest relationship to the Father. Literally, he's in the bosom of God hearing the heart of God for all eternity. That's what we're called to do, like John, to be in the bosom of Christ and to hear his heart for us, for the church, for the world, to look out from that place of hearing that to those who are discouraged, disappointed, doubting in their lives, and to heal and feel what God feels about that, to be close to his heart. Now, these aren't just nice words that I'm sharing to you. It's actually part of a prophetic word that was given to me. Only a few weeks ago, on the 20th of April, a couple in America, significant ministry, been in ministry for decades, they they said, I'll just give you a few little bits here. They said this to me, the number one thing the Lord wants you to focus on is your intimacy with Him. Just be a man who loves God. The Lord is jealous for your heart. You're called to be a John with your head on Jesus' chest. They didn't know that in a few weeks we'd be here today starting this series in John's gospel. I believe their words aren't just for me. They're for all of us. I feel like God's made me aware of many in the room today and online who feel wounded, worn out, weary, run down, wilting. And this series is for you. It's for you. Life, life, hope, abundance. It's a feast on the person of Jesus. 
I believe that God's really on this series. Um, earlier this year, some months back, actually, right at the start of the year, we saw a deal on John's Gospel on these Bible journals, uh, and that's what you've got. It's, it's for you. This is a gift for you to make the most out of this series, to make the most out of what God is really saying to you, to us as a church. There's space in it for you to write, to annotate, to put your prayers in it, to fellowship and meet with God, not just on Sundays, but, but throughout the week, to really try and hear, to underline, to get into the text, to, to shape it, to mark it up, to fellowship with God, how through his word, we want you to encounter God in the scriptures. That's why we've given you this. Also, though, you might want to take an extra copy and read John's gospel with somebody else. Maybe he's on a journey to faith. So how are we going to start this series? How are we going to start today um, on this great adventure of encounter with Jesus? Now, last week it was Star Wars Day, Uh, May the 4th. May the force be with you. For all Star Wars fans out there would have seen that, and those who aren't Star Wars fans would have been inundated with that. Anyway, um, so I thought, and some of you know that, you know, think that I might have Jedi skills. I'm aware of that. You kind of sometimes people attribute to me that I am a mind reader, um, so I thought maybe you could have a go at reading my mind. So I'm going to beam into you now how we're going to approach the rest of this sermon. Uh, are you ready? The points I'm going to make, I'm just going to start. So here I'm, I'm going to go for it right now. Are you ready to receive? Some of you really don't look like you're ready to receive this, but here we go. I'm going. Ready? <laughs> Somebody got it. If you did get it, that's very strange because the... the, the <laughs> It obviously is not going to work, right? Why? I didn't use words. You can't know because I didn't use words. Now hold that thought. We're going to get to the significance of that. Um, I am going to unpack this sermon in three points, three words. Revelation, invitation, and emancipation. So we're going to start with revelation. Revelation. God can be known. God really can be known. That's a provocative statement, really, for the majority of people in our nation, in our country. They don't believe that he can Is he even there? Let alone if he is there, does he even care about me and what's going on in my life? Yet, ironically, the majority of people in our nation believe in some kind of mystical higher power or other, some kind of supernatural being that's out there, but they don't believe that he or it can be accessed and related to, that is interested in their lives. And John comes and he destroys that kind of thinking in this gospel, and he begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Eternally with God. And the Word was God. He is God-like. This Word, Jesus Christ. He uses the word, Word, three times to make a very powerful point. He'll say it again in verse 14. Now, I'm not going to unpack the whole verse because we did that back in February. You can check it out. It's the beginning message of our Bible in 12 verses series. I just want to highlight the importance of the translation of this Greek word, logos, to Word. Word is a disclosure. Word means an unveiling. Word is a way to explain or to make sense of that which is invisible, uh, coming visible as you give it words, as you give it language, your feelings, your inner thought life, your heart, what's really going on inside you becomes known. This is God's heart. He has eternally been the Word. He eternally wants to reveal, to make known, to invite you to discover who He is and what He's like. That's the heart of God. And how did He do that at first? He did it through creation. Now, John does something geniusly clever. 
in this prologue to this gospel, that he marries it with Genesis chapter 1. Now, you would know that probably because the first verses kind of nearly match each other. What you may not have thought about is that he continues that pattern all the way through this prologue. So we get to verse 3, which is a summary of the whole of chapter 1. All of the creative work of God. And we're saying here, Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Therefore, the fingerprints, the qualities, the characteristics of God have been revealed in creation. This is why Psalm 19 would say that the stars, we don't get to see them often in London, but that the, when we see them, we know there's something glorious. The heavens declare the glory of God. Even in the way that ants operate and manage themselves, Solomon will say there's wisdom to learn. It's because God's created that. You can discover Something of him in that. Or managing anxiety. Jesus would say, consider the lilies. Look at creation. Hear God's voice in creation and see how he cares for lilies, flowers, and then discover how much more then would he care for you, his image bearers. Paul sums it all up like this in his letter to the church in Rome. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being, being understood from what has been made. But there's a problem. Most of the time we're not seeing. We're not looking. There's all this light pollution. <laughs> we're not noticing. We're too busy, we're too distracted. And we're even deceived. Verse 4, John is talking about, he says, God is light. In him there is no darkness. Light is the means or the ability by which to be able to see something, to make sense of reality, to understand what's going on. And then he gets into verse 5, and he's saying there's this spiritual battle between light and darkness. The light has come, and the darkness can't overcome it, but there's this battle that's going on that's causing a blindness and a not being able to really see what's going on. Verse 5 is really a summary of what happened in chapter 3 of Genesis. Of Adam and Eve in the garden, being deceived by darkness, being blinded to believe untruths about the nature and character of God, that He is not good, that He is not near, that He is withholding goodness from them. And so they believe in the darkness rather than the light, and the darkness comes into them and into all of us, so that there is this darkness inside us and outside of us, that God has to deal with, what does he do? He doesn't leave us alone. He sends prophets. Verses 6 and 7 of John's gospel. John the Baptist is introduced here as the embodiment, the summary of all prophetic ministry, all these individuals that God has sent through time. Just as a clarifier at this point, can be confusing if you're new to the Christian thing. John the Baptist is not John the author of this biography. John the Baptist was Jesus' second cousin, we believe. He's the kind of slightly unusual guy. He's the guy who wears camel clothes, camel skin clothes, and he eats locusts dipped in honey. I imagine them being dipped in honey. I don't know, maybe everybody has somebody like this in their family who's slightly unusual. 
Um, but there could be some significance to that. Honey, the promised land, locusts, the years that have been taken away from Joel's prophecies, dipping them into the promised land and indwelling on them. I'll leave that just as a thought for you. But this is John the Baptist who's called to prepare the way for Jesus, not John. John was one of Jesus' closest followers and disciples. But biblical scholars would say that you can put all of the Jewish prophets into verses 6 and 7. All prophets are sent by God to make God known and to encourage people to follow his ways. The issue is is that people don't. And we're included in that. We don't respond. We don't follow. We live our own way, not God's way. So what does God do? Does he say, I've tried. I have sent them. I don't know how many prophets I've sent them, but I've sent them a lot of prophets, and they are still not following. Should he just give up? Does he do that? No, that's not the heart of God. What does he do? He doesn't walk away. He takes a massive step closer. Of course, in the incarnation, verse 9, the true light enters into the world. Verse 14, the Word, God the Son eternal, takes on flesh. And it says he tabernacles with us. He becomes the the temple embodiment, the presence of God walking amongst us. He moves into our neighborhood. You know the song, what if God was one of us? He was one of us. That's this amazing truth. God turns up the volume on his revelation. God adjusts the focus So you can see more clearly, he perfectly attunes the brightness and the saturation and the contrast. So Jesus is revealing God like never before. Why does he do all of that? So that you, so that that you might know God. Wow. And in knowing God that you might know how known by God, you are. Do you, do you know that yet? This leads me to the second point of invitation. You can be known. You can be known. I wonder if you've ever thought any of the following. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what it's like to, to be me. You can't speak into my life. You don't know what's going on in me. Right? I, I would imagine, show of hands, honestly, that would be all of us at some point. We have felt that way. It's such a common narrative that it features all over popular culture. Like songs. Tom Petty, 19... 94 sang this line, you don't know how it feels to be me. Britney Spears sang Justin Timberlake's line, you don't know what it's like to be me. In 2020, Sleeping Wolf, the band, sang the same line, you don't know what it's like to be me. I don't personally, but God does. God really does. He knows in three ways. Firstly, because he's omniscient. It is in his divine nature, because he is God, to know all things. 
Secondly, because he is your creator. He formed you. If you like, in an anthropomorphical way, he formed you with his hands. He's intimately acquainted with all your ways. Read Psalm 139. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows you. And then thirdly, he's walked more than a mile in your shoes. He's lived 33 years in them. He knows what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like to be a refugee. To be ripped out of where he was because of a, a tyrannical leader, kind of a, the, the Herod, you know, a bit like what's going on in Russia, uh, and taken out and have to go to Egypt as a young boy and then be brought back when it was safe. He knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to be a victim of racism. To be spat upon as a Jew by Romans. He knows what it's like to be completely misunderstood, even by his own family. They thought he was mad. He knows what it's like to feel utterly overwhelmed with responsibility to the point that he sweats drops of blood. He knows what it's like to be rejected and to be betrayed even by one close to him, Judas. He knows what it's like to grieve. He's familiar with sorrow and suffering from the inside out. Can this be said of any other so-called God in the world today? Jesus knows what it's like to be you. He knows you. As I said, he created you. That's verse 3, by the way. That means he knows what you're here for because he created you. He's got all the answers to the biggest questions of life, of meaning and purpose. They are found in him and his invitation of this gospel. And you'll see it coming again and again, the same three words. Come and see. Come and see. Come and discover for yourself. Don't believe what other people say about Jesus. Come and meet him for yourself. Encounter him in the gospel that is written about him and you'll discover without prejudice. This is what he's really like. He wants to know you and he wants you to be known. But he doesn't just want you to be known. He wants you to be loved. To be loved. This is verse 12. And John writes about becoming children of God. Being in the experience of having the love and the acceptance and the security of being held in the powerful, protective arms of Almighty God. That is a place of amazing freedom, physical but just also emotional, to really be you. To feel safe to be you. 
It's a death blow to what we call the orphan spirit, which is so often in many of us, this desire to compete with others, to be seen, to feel better than, to say, oh, I'm okay because I'm doing better than other people, all of that kind of stuff that's, that's going on in us all the time, or, or to fight to protect your position and your status and your reputation and your image, or to go it alone. I can't trust anybody. I've got to fight for my own rights and survival and do all this stuff. It's the orphan spirit. When you are a child of God, you just feel a sense of peace and safety and love and an ease to the way that we live. And what's amazing is that when you become a child of God, you can't be unchilded. That word doesn't exist, to my knowledge at least, in the English language. Um, That's because being unchilded doesn't exist as a concept in the world. You can't be unborn in nature. And so you can't be unborn in God's family. And John underlines this here in this passage in verse 13. And he says that if you are born of God, if you become a child of God, it doesn't rest on your human will. You see that there? It doesn't rest on your human decision-making ability. Fickle because that is, of ups and downs, of your will, of your decision-making. In the most literal translations, it goes on to say, it rests on the will of God. Wow, that is God's will, unbreakable. Will of God. His will is unbreakable because he's all-powerful and he's almighty because nothing can stop his will from being achieved. If he sets his mind to something, it will surely happen because he is God. This is a glorious truth. Your salvation doesn't rest on you. Once saved, always saved. Jesus in verse 18 is coming, it says, to make God known. He's in in the closest relationship with the Father, in the bosom of the Father. And he's coming to reveal the nature of God, his love. So his ministry is a revelation of this is the heart of God the Father. This is what he's like. He's revealing that. And he's giving you access ultimately to embrace that love through the ultimate act of love, his death on the cross, to pay the penalty for all sin, all wrongdoing, so that this this barrier between you and him is gone, is ripped apart, so you can know and have full access to this love of God. That is the the ministry of Jesus that's being revealed in this gospel to us. That's why John says he wrote it. John chapter 20 verse 31, the purpose statement. He's writing that you might believe and go on believing and have life, abundance of life in his name. God is the supersized fulfillment of the best earthly dad that you can ever imagine. Now to help you to try to imagine, I'd like you to think of a man called Dick Hoyt. He had a child called Rick who was born deprived of oxygen, who was diagnosed as quadriplegic with cerebral palsy from birth. And the doctors said he will never have a normal life. But they didn't believe him. They fought for their son. And they got him an education. They found a way for him to be able to communicate through a computer. They got him to even have a degree himself. And then in the spring of 1977, Rick says to his dad, Dick, 
Dad, I've heard about this um, five-mile charity run. Uh, it's it's a, an event for a lacrosse player who's been paralyzed. And I, I want to do that run, Dad. Could we? Could we? His dad's not a runner. But he said, yeah, we'll do it. They finished next to last. But that evening, Rick says to his dad, Dad, when we ran together, it felt like I wasn't handicapped anymore. That moved his father's heart so much that they would run again and again and again. Marathons, triathlons. Dick would push and he would pull and he would carry his son all over as an expression of his love for him. All up until last year when he passed away. If you need help to know God's heart for you, Google those names. Watch the video. And however great that love is, God's love is greater for his children. Do you know that love? How well do you know that love? Are you fellowshipping in that love? Are you spending time with this God of love? My third, my final point is emancipation. You can be free. Emancipation, you can be free. I was uh, meeting up with someone recently in New Acre Cafe, and they were, they were telling me about um, how people approach freedom in the world today. He was saying freedom is like a, a thing that people want to get, to, 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 to possess. It's like an object that you kind of try and own, this idea of absolute freedom. I, I want it, and I'll do anything to try and get this idea of absolute freedom in my life. I was able to say to him, but what if freedom actually is a context that you submit to instead? I got his interest at that point. I then went on to say, what if it's a little bit more like a fish? Outside of its goldfish bowl, it flounders, struggles, and will ultimately die. But put it back in water, and it thrives, and it flourishes, because it's in the element for which it was made. I love it when you, these people have moments like that, just an aha moment like that, it's just like, <laughs> kind of discovery. Um, you guys don't look like that happened for you in that moment today, this morning. But you know, for him, it was like amazing. He got out his phone. He wrote it down and put it back in. I did not want to say in that moment to my shame. I actually got that from somebody else, a pastor called John Stott. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I looked a lot more impressive than I, than, I, than I really am. We all want to be free. But we all operate by a set of laws or standards that hold us in prison whether they are externally imposed, religiously imposed, internally imposed. We have standards that we all have to live up to, that we create for ourselves in terms of being a spouse, a lover, a parent, a worker, a friend, a child. When we make them, we live up to these standards, the occasional moments, we feel so proud. Like, I'm the best, you're all rubbish, I did it, I had my day, I have succeeded. Most of the time it's not like that. We just feel condemned and rubbish and not good enough, unworthy, useless, worthless. So then when we come to verses 16 and 17, where 
John is introducing the law of Moses in contrast to Jesus. It's really helpful to understand this. The law was originally good in its intent and it was the standard of rightness that God had set for a particular people at a particular time in a particular place with principles that would go on to last. But it was a burden that would crush them ultimately because instead of it revealing how far short of God that they'd fallen so that they would come to him and experience fellowship with him, they just let it condemn them and crush them and make them feel worthless and rubbish and unwanted and ugly. So again, what does God do here? Well, it says he comes with grace upon grace. This is the gospel of abundance. This is the banquet feast of mercy and delight. It is a gospel of abundant life, life to the full, Jesus is going to say. That's why he's going to go and make crazy amounts of wine in the next chapter, more than is needed. It comes with grace to overcome that. God himself comes and he lives up to all the demands of the law. He fulfills them and beyond them in dying upon the cross, in loving God perfectly, in loving others perfectly. And all of that righteousness gets given to you by faith when you believe upon him. It's yours. You don't have to live up to a standard anymore because it's been lived up to already for you and it's put inside you. No longer externally out there, but internally in here. Delivered, fulfilled, completed. You don't live up to it. You now live out of it. It's freedom. It's emancipation. Freedom from condemnation. You're no longer a fish floundering out of water, feeling not good enough. I can't make it. I keep failing. I'm struggling. You're now a fish in the water, but in the element for which you were made, which is not water, it's Jesus Christ. You're in Him, in the goldfish bowl of Christ Himself, fulfilled, swimming in His love, in freedom, in joy. The past is gone. The things that bound you, that shackled you in shame and guilt and condemnation, they are gone. Only you see yourself of having that now and that past and history. God doesn't see it that way. You're liberated. It's glorious, glorious truth. What does it look like then to be liberated, to find this freedom? Well, I think it looks a little bit like being called to follow Jesus. I'm going to say, I'll follow you. I'm going to give up all of that because I, I don't need all of that anymore, that life. I'm just going to follow you, John chapter 1. It's an amazing sort of turnaround of like, these things are so important to me, but now I've met you, Jesus. You're the only thing that matters. I'm going to follow you. John chapter 2. It's a little bit like drinking the wine at the wedding of Cana. Can you imagine it's said to be the best wine for last? It's meant to make you a little bit giddy. You can be a little bit awkward and, and weird and, and happy and joyful and excited. Forgiveness, I'm forgiven. This is amazing. It's a party spirit. It's a little bit like John chapter 4, the woman at the well. She's so isolated in shame, in hiding. You know, other people, you know, she, she's, she's fearful of what they think about her. She meets Jesus. He absorbs all that shame. Now she's running to the people that she was hiding from. She was intimidated by them. Now she cares not about what they think about her because she's met someone who knows her. And she says in her own words, let me tell you about a man who told you everything I ever did. She feels so known and so seen and so loved by this Jesus. Or it's a little bit like what happens in John chapter 5. 
You've got the cripple, this beggar at the pool of Bethesda. Again, geographical location. 38 years. What a great detail. He's been crippled for. He can't walk. He can't move. He can't earn money. He can't look after himself. Absolutely no real freedom in that society. Jesus comes and he heals him. Boom. Can you see it? Can you, can you imagine what his face might look like as he's, as he's walking around for the first time? As he's kind of dancing and experiencing movement and freedom and going wherever he wants to go, unrestricted and unlimited anymore. These are all pictures illustrations, real stories, but designed to help you understand the freedom of the gospel, the freedom of life in Jesus Christ, the abundant life that flows out of his amazing love for us. How do you receive it? How do you get it? Well, verse 12, it's just that you receive it, it says. That means you open up yourself to say, I want this. Jesus, give me this. I'm hungry for this. I want you. It's not just like, Jesus, I only want this part of you, or I like that bit, but not, no, it's like, I want just want all of you, Jesus. I'll take you just as you are, just as you're revealed in this Bible. That's the Jesus that I want. I want to receive you. And then it says, believe in his name. To believe in his name, to believe in his character, his name, his, his nature, his likeness, his goodness, his beauty, what's revealed of him. To really believe, to engage with preaching, to engage with Bible study, to engage with fellowship with other believers. To really get to know him, but also to witness for him. That was the ministry of John the Baptist. What I find so interesting is that he is the person who most clearly sees Jesus at this point in the story. Why? Because I believe he's on mission for Jesus. Preparing the way for the Lord. And so he's able to see something of the beauty of Jesus and will be able to see something more of the beauty of Jesus as we're on mission for him in this blessed season, as we step out in faith, as we prepare the way for the Lord, for others to encounter him. And how do we do that? Well, we do that with the same model of ministry that we've seen here. It's one of empathy. It's one of coming alongside. It's one of seeing people. It's one of loving people. Jesus came to make God He was in the bosom of the Father for all eternity. And now he comes to his church and he says, will you make me know? We're called to be his hands and feet to the body of Christ, to flesh out the nature of Jesus, the nature and the likeness of the Father and the Son through the way that we operate and live. How do you do that? Well, you do that by being in the bosom of Jesus. You do that through intimacy. You do that through spending time with him. You do that through fellowshipping with him. You do that through studying his word and hearing his voice, hearing his heart for you. And as you do that, we're looking out from that place, head on his chest. We're looking out to the world, feeling his heart for others. Will you do that? I tell you, if we do that, we'll change the world. An authentic movement of God followers who intimately know him and are acquainted with his ways. We don't fake it. 
We don't do it out of duty, but do it because we know him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much, God, that you came, that you made yourself known, that you revealed yourself, Lord. You did it in creation, you did it through the prophets, but you did it ultimately in Jesus. God, forgive us. Please forgive us for all the ways in which we avoid time with you. All the ways where which we've been distracted and busy, where we haven't prioritized just sitting and being with you. God, in this season, help us to know you. Help us to know you more intimately and deeply. Help us to know you in the power of your resurrection and in fellowship with your sufferings. Teach us your ways, Jesus. Help us to hear your heartbeat for each one of us, how loved by you we are. We are your children, Lord, and help us then to live as your children, affirmed in our identity, assured of our salvation, confident of our destiny, that we would go forward. And instead of taking a backward step, we would take a massive step towards people who might even reject us as you did for us and show them the love that we have experienced ourselves in you. Help us to be witnesses because we have witnessed and we have seen of your incredible love and greatness. Pour upon us now as we seek to worship you. Help us to meet with you in spirit and truth. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.